Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 3. We've been in John's gospel, really, I think since the beginning of the year. And this morning we arrive at verse 22. We're going to cover verses 22 uh, through 30. So let me read uh, the passage and then we'll discuss it. Uh, the Word of God reads this way. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at uh, Anan near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, Jesus has just finished this his conversation with Nicodemus that we looked at for the last couple of weeks. And um, he's had this powerful discussion with Nicodemus. And then John tells us, after this, after this discussion... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and they were baptizing. Now, John 4 will tell us that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, as were the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, whenever I prepare a sermon, I usually start Wednesday morning about 8 for the upcoming Sunday, I sit down with, with the text of Scripture, with my Bible, with a journal or a notebook, and the first thing I do is I just read and write, read and I write, observe what's in the te text, ask questions that may come from the text. If we're going to understand the scriptures, which I think we have to admit, there's some difficult things in there. If we're going to understand them rightly, the first thing we have to do is simply observe what's going on. So we say, okay, what, what's going on in this text of scripture? What is this passage talking about and to whom was it written? We put aside our, our presuppositions our personal opinions, all the things that we want the text to say, and we simply read it and see what's there. Well, here it seems pretty clear because Jesus' disciples are baptizing, John's disciples are baptizing, it seems pretty clear that baptism was important to uh, Jesus and his followers. In fact, it will be that, that they're baptizing, the fact that they're baptizing, that causes all kinds of controversy. Verse 25 tells us that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we're not told exactly what the debate was or what, what the content of the discussion was, but we do know in, in the first century Jewish culture that in order for a person to worship, in order for a person to enter the temple, in order for a person to participate in the festivals, and really in order for a person even to enjoy a meal, uh, that person had to be ritually or ceremonially clean. And there are all kinds of things that could render a person unclean. For example, if you ate food that was unclean, then you were unclean. If you touched a dead body, I don't know how often this happened, but if you touched a dead body, you were rendered unclean. If a woman were menstruating, she was unclean, and anyone who touched her was unclean. Um, there are a variety of ways that a person, if you touched an animal, you could become unclean. 
So if you were unclean, you couldn't participate in temple worship. You couldn't enjoy meals. You couldn't participate in the festivals. And in order for a person to be cleansed, they had to go into the water. They had to go be immersed in water, uh, going into what was called in the Hebrew a mikvah. In fact, uh, uh, let me show you a picture of what a mikvah is. It's a it's a sort of a, a, a baptism where you would walk into the steps. You see it there. You were fully immersed in the water. And then as you exited, and there was a very prescribed way to go about this, you then were cleansed from your impurities. And so, again, we don't know exactly what the discussion is, but what seems to be going on is the disciples are saying, okay, we know what happens when a person goes down into the mikvah and comes back up, but what's going on over there? What's happening with Jesus? What happens when he baptizes? What happens when John baptizes? What does the water actually do? Now, we have the entirety of the scriptures now, and so we know what actually happens with baptism. We know that a person is not made clean by the waters of baptism, but going into the water is an illustration of the spiritual cleansing that takes place by faith in Christ. As we descend, even today, as we descend into the waters of baptism, we are showing what we deserve for our sins, death. And as we are lifted up out of the water, we are showing that we've been given new life, saved unto new life in Jesus Christ. So what I tend to say, and other pastors may say, when, when they baptize, is buried in the likeness of his death, right? That's the symbol, symbolizing dying with Christ, raised to walk in newness in life. Now, what I want to point out, just as we're beginning to look at this section, by simply observing what's in the text, is just how important it was to Jesus and John the Baptist to see people baptized. So, so here's the first point I want to make as we just launch into this. Baptism is a picture of God's power in salvation and therefore cherished by Christ and His followers. So it's an illustration. It doesn't save anyone. You're not saved by being baptized. It is an illustration of dying with Christ, turning from our sin, being raised to newness and life. It's a demonstration really of what God does in making someone alive. It's a demonstration of God's power in salvation, taking someone who is spiritually dead and making them alive in Christ. This is why Jesus was not only committed to it, but he also commanded it. This is why John the Baptist commanded it. It was that important to them. And let me just say this. If you haven't been baptized, if, you have, if you've professed Christ as Savior and Lord, you put your faith in Him, but you haven't been baptized, you're not only neglecting an opportunity to display the power of God in salvation, but you're actually disobeying God because this was commanded by Him. So if, you're, if this is something you're wrestling with, we're going to have a baptism service on April 28th. Uh, next week is an information meeting. So be thinking about that if, you're, if, you, if you call yourself a Christ follower and you haven't followed through in this, be thinking about uh, doing this in just a few weeks. Now, questions about the purification, that wasn't the only thing that surfaced or caused controversy. Look at verse 26 again. And they came to John, this is the, the disciples of John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, of course this is a reference to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So what John's disciples say in essence here is, look, we're losing steam here. We're no longer the main attraction. It seems like everybody's going to this other person. 
the one that you're telling everybody now, everyone's actually going to him. We're losing focus now. Now remember, John the Baptist was, when he came along, he was the first prophet in Israel for 400 years. And he was, he was a big-time celebrity. People were coming in from all, from all over. In fact, uh, Luke tells us that multitudes came to him. Matthew tells us that from Jerusalem and all Judea, the whole region of Jordan, people traveled to see this preacher, John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus himself calls, him, calls John the Baptist, get this, the greatest person ever born of a woman. So anyone who's ever been, anyone who ever exists is born of a woman. So Jesus says, this is the greatest person who's ever come along. And all of a sudden, people are starting to lose interest in John the Baptist, and they're starting to go to Jesus. And John the Baptist's followers, they're not real thrilled about it. They say, look, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see that people were coming to us, and now they're going to him? All of a sudden, people aren't paying attention to John the Baptist the way they used to. And John's followers are envious. John's followers are jealous which is not hard to relate to, isn't it? It's not hard to relate to being envious of someone else's notoriety, of someone else's success. Have you ever looked around at your friends, maybe a fellow church member or, or neighbor, and thought, why is he doing so well and I'm not? Well, why does it seem like everything she does succeeds? Her house is immaculate. Her kids are perfect. Her husband's clothes always match. Everything that she does... It just seems right. And here I am, I'm just barely making it. I'm barely surviving. And I look around and see how things are working for her. You ever looked around at, at the office and you thought, what, now why, why did he get a promotion? Why did she get a promotion and I didn't? How come we have to work full time, both of us, and they don't? How come they take these long vacations I've been here for spring break, and I'm seeing what everybody else is doing. Why does it work out for everybody else that way and not me? You ever looked at someone and thought, why does he get all the attention? This is how I feel, by the way, every time I go out to lunch with Pastor Chris. <laughs> we, we could sit down for lunch, and as soon as he takes a sip of his drink, multiple servers come over and give him a top meal. I could be slurping at my straw. Seriously, you know what a sound when, when there's nothing left but ice? I could be slurping. And apparently they consider, oh, he's fine. You know, he, he, he's good. I go out with that. We went out just the other day, and um, I'm dying of thirst. His drink hasn't gone down even, even a millimeter. He's got constant. In fact, I shared this uh, at our elder Q&A last week. Uh, Pastor Chris and I went to the Great American Cookie Company, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago. And as we walked in, the lady who was working at the counter, she said to Chris, he came in right before I, she said, well, hello, honey. She said, what can I get for you today? She was so pleasant and chipper. And then she, she took his order, gave him his cookies. And then when she handed him his cookies, she looked at me and she said, and for you, sir. That's seriously the way, that's exactly the way it went down. And I'm thinking like, why does he get all the attention? Like, I'm going to buy a cookie too. Have you ever looked at someone and you thought, why is it working so well for them? What it seems like for me, it's just not working great. This is what was happening to John the Baptist's disciples. They're envious. They're jealous. And you know, this can really happen. It happens 
I don't want to say more, but it, it happens all the time in vocational ministry. It happens in pastoral ministry. How many pastors have been derailed or even thrown in the towel because they look at another ministry and it's just exploding with numerical growth. They think, well, I just, this just is not working for me. How many men, and I know as I look back at the men that I graduated from seminary with, most of those men are doing other things. And there's nothing ignoble, there's nothing wrong about doing other things. But in a lot of cases, it's because they looked around and they, they were envious of other people's ministries. A New Testament scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, says, looking over one's shoulder at other people's ministries is one of the most frequent impediments to and temptations in faithful discipleship. It happens all the time with preachers and teachers and pastors, and this is what was happening then. John the Baptist followers, they said, wait a second, we were the main attraction. Everybody was coming to you, and now, look, everybody's going to him. John the Baptist was kind of like the Beatles and Justin Bieber, and he was all of that in one person, and everybody's coming. Then all of a sudden, it's like everybody's gone, and they're frustrated, and they're envious. But John won't be sucked into their discontentment. Look at his, he has a beautiful answer in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What John says is, there's not an ounce of success. There's not one single spiritual victory. And we could say not just spiritual victory, vocational victory, emotional victory, parenting victory. There's not one single victory that's not a direct gift from God. And furthermore, there's not one setback in your life. Not one trial, not one failure, not one challenge even the one you may be going through right now that is not ordained by God for your good and His glory. What John does is he takes his own disciples back to the beautiful doctrine of God's sovereignty. And here's what we learn from this. It's our second point. The remedy for jealousy is confidence in the sovereignty of God. You look around and you say, well, but I don't understand why are things going so well for him? Why is she succeeding? We have to remember, he doesn't have one thing. She's not experienced one victory except what God has sovereignly ordained. And the same is true for us. We're, you know, we're transitioning to an elder-led uh, uh, polity here at Capshaw, which means we've moved from deacon-led to elder-led. And part of the process has been these training sessions we've been doing on Monday nights at my house with our, our elders, and it's just been wonderful. And the last Monday night, we spent almost our entire time talking about the sovereignty of God. The Scriptures tell us that every event in history, every single detail that will unfold, including all the goings-on of humanity, are ordained by God. He's in control of all of it. The Westminster Confession reads, it says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This means nothing. Nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. Nothing is beyond God's sovereign decree. Whether it's the fight you had last week with your son or daughter, whether it's that, that, that nagging cough that just won't seem to go away, the accident you just narrowly avoided on your way to work last week, the sickness you keep dealing with, 
the death of the one you loved, the salvation of the one you prayed for, none of it is random. None of it is meaningless. None of it happens by happenstance. It is all ordained by God for your good. Everything, all the events in history, nature and natural disasters, suffering and even salvation. Now one person comes to Jesus in saving faith except those he has ordained before they were born. Salvation is from the Lord. Paul says this in Romans, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And remember on that great historic day in Antioch where Paul just preaches his heart out. He just preaches everything he's got. He's just showcasing Christ. He's just magnifying Christ. And then the text tells us in Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And get this, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Even salvation is, is by God's sovereign decree. In fact, every single little thing, even human decisions, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the roll of the dice, if it's coming up sixes, if it's coming up ones, it's all part of God's sovereign design. Not, there's not, as, as one person says, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. It's all ordained by Him. The passage I just read, John the Baptist says it this way, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Again, any ounce of success we have in disciple-making, in our jobs, in our finances, in our parenting, whatever it is, it is a gift of God and a credit to His sovereignty. Which doesn't mean, of course, that we just sit back and we're, we're lazy and we say, well, you know, God's in control. You know, I can't do anything, so I'm not even going to try. No, we... we plan and we strategize and we pray and we make an effort and we invest and we pray. And when things go well, we say, this is the hand of God. And when things go poorly, we say, it's the hand of God. And even though I can't understand it, I can't make sense of it, we recognize I only see but a small, just millisecond, just a tiny bit of all eternity. So how can I say that it's good or not good? We trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Again, when the results are good, we see God's hand in them and we praise Him. And when the results of our efforts seem to be bad, hopeless, lost, we trust that God knows best, that we don't know the whole picture, that He's up to something so far beyond our understanding. And He will, in His good providence, turn this chaos into beauty. Now, John continues with his answer in verses 28 through 30. Look at this again. He says, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So remember in John 1, we saw where um, people, Pharisees and other delegates come to John. They say, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not, I'm not the Christ. They say, are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah either. Are you the great prophet? Are you Moses? No, I'm not Moses. I'm none of these. 
I'm simply one who is a witness to another. I'm pointing to another. I'm a voice in the wilderness. And here John appeals to a wedding analogy and says, the bride belongs to the groom. In other words, all of those people over there who are being baptized, all those people who are gaining entrance into the kingdom and being baptized into the church, they belong to the groom, not me. They belong to the groom. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. The church belongs to Jesus, not any one of his servants. Jesus is Lord of the church and he takes great delight in his bride. Is there anything that brings a groom more joy than his bride? When Janine and I got married, we, you didn't have Facebook and there weren't a lot of digital copies of pictures, but we we waited and waited and waited. We got our wedding album back. And, and when people went through the wedding album, when they saw the one, the picture, where we're walking out of the church together holding hands, so many people said to me, I've never seen you smile that big before. I've never seen you look so happy. And it was true. I'd never been so happy. There, the, what gives a groom more joy than the bride? Well, when people enter the church by believing in Jesus, by faith in Christ, and identify with Him in baptism, Jesus takes tremendous delight. And when we hear the voice of the groom, you know, we have the voice of the groom. The Scriptures are the mind of Christ, the voice of the groom. When we hear the voice of God, when we hear our Savior's voice, we find delight in them as well. John uh, says in verse 29, Therefore... Or because I hear the voice of the groom, the joy of my joy is now complete. You know, the search for happiness is seemingly endless, isn't it? And, you know, we look anywhere for happiness. In fact, Solomon, this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon says, Solomon had everything. He had the most ornate gardens, the most spectacular houses, the most beautiful women, the greatest food. And what does he say at the end of all of it? He says, I wish I hadn't even been born. He had everything. He said, I w-, he said this is the way, the whole point is, life without God is meaningless and miserable. And yet we continue to search in everything. This is the story of life without God. It is, it is an endless drama of ups and downs, endless conflict without any lasting hope, we look everywhere for, for, for happiness. We look at success and money and pleasure and sex and relationships, the accumulation of things, freedom from constraints, freedom from our boss, freedom from our parents, freedom from rules, whatever it is. We look anywhere. Well, John says, here is the joy equation, hence the title of this sermon. Here's the joy equation. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the formula for joy. It is only in a relationship with Jesus Christ, hearing His voice, resting in His finished work, obeying His commands, like John, recognizing all the things we're not. We're not in control, but He is. We're not our own Savior, but He is. We don't have everything, but He does. It's recognizing all the things we're not. We're not perfect, but He is. And it's only in making much of Him and entrusting less in ourselves that we ultimately find that true and lasting joy. And isn't this really 
you know, you read the com- all the commentaries that they go on and on about the humility of John, and, and, and I agree. But isn't this really the essence of humility? As C.S. Lewis once pointed out, it's not thinking less about ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves less. That's a very important distinction. It's not thinking less about ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. See, there are a lot of things that masquerade as humility. Humility is not self-loathing. Sometimes we think the most humble person is the one who's always talking down. I'm just, I'm terrible. I can't do anything right. I'm a miserable person. No reason anybody should love me. I'm just a horrible person. That's not actually humility. That's pride because what we're trying to do is put the spotlight on ourselves again. Humility is not false modesty. A person who's falsely modest is always downplaying or deflecting compliments or praise. Someone says, you look really beautiful today. They say, not really. Not really. They say, oh, you, you, you did such a great job with that. I'm so proud of you. You did a wonderful job. They say, you wouldn't say that if you really knew me. They're constantly sort of deflecting, and it's this false modesty. Instead of saying, thank you, that's encouraging. Praise God for that. It's always, you know, it's always this sense of false modesty. They want people to think better of them because they recognize how humble they are. And it's a, it's a temptation, isn't it? I, the other day I walked into Panera Bread, and there was a lady from our church who was waiting in line to order. And with her was another lady who, she explained to me, didn't go to our church. And this one lady who goes to our church said to the other lady, she goes, oh, this is my pastor. You have to meet our pastor. You've got to come and hear him preach. And I said with great false modesty, I said, well, I'm sure you'd be underwhelmed. And I thought about that. I thought that was the dumbest thing I could have said. Why didn't I just say thank you? Why didn't I just say, you know what? I praise God for what he's doing at Capstraw because that's the way I really feel. Why do I have to say something so stupid? Because it was false modesty coming out. I thought, well, I'm going to sound really humble here if I talk about how miserable I am as a preacher. It's, it, was, it was ridiculous. Humility is also not undue deference. You know what this is, undue deference? It's downplaying our own gifts so that we'll be begged to help or begged to serve, right? It's like, no, no let, let's let somebody else do that for a while. When Janine and I were in the hospital for the birth of our first son, we were, you know, as first-time parents were, we were wide-eyed and we were scared and we were optimistic. And when Janine was being wheeled back into surgery uh, for a C-section, her mom said to the surgeon, she said, I'll be praying for you, doctor. To which he replied, don't bother, I don't need it. Now, that's not terribly comforting um, when the doctor who's going to perform surgery on your wife is sort of mocking God. But neither did I want him to say, oh, you know what, John? I didn't see you there. Look, I'm not going to do the surgery since you're here. Why don't you do the surgery? I didn't want that either. That is undue deference. It's, we say, well, I don't want to steal the opportunity for somebody else to serve. Really, what we want to do is we want to be asked again and again. See, humility is not thinking less about ourselves again, but thinking about ourselves less. And the reason we're thinking about ourselves less is because what we're thinking about more is, how can I see Christ exalted? How can I see Jesus magnified? How can I see my Lord and Savior, my Redeemer and King, how can I see the spotlight directed at Him rather than me? Now, this is not the natural inclination of our hearts, is it? We want the glory 
We want the attention. We want the spotlight. So how do we actually get there? How do we get to the place where we want to see Christ magnified above all else, where that actually is our greatest desire? In an age of the selfie, where there's an obsession with promoting ourselves, and I read something this week that um, the average teenager takes between five and eight selfies a day. Um, so in the and this is look, and this is not to pick on teenagers. The, the, I also read that the boomer generation is more apt to focus on their success, their financial investments, prosperity, history, career, whatever than any other generation. It's, it really doesn't matter what generation you're part of. We all have this desire. It's, it's the natural impulse of the unglorified heart to see ourselves magnified. So how do we actually get to a point where we want to see Jesus glorified? Well, the answer goes back to the conversation that we looked at between Jesus and Nicodemus. We've been looking at for the past few weeks. The foundation for that desire to see Christ magnified is the new birth. No one will ever want to see Christ exalted except they're born again from above. But the fuel for continued desire to see Christ magnified is nothing else but the recognition of God's love for us in Christ. The understanding and the appreciation of this, this magnificent phrase, for God so loved the world. Here's our final point this morning. The longing to see Christ exalted is found in knowing the joy of His love. There's no other way. There's no other way that you are going to desire to see Christ exalted, that I'm going to long to see Christ exalted, except as I learn to revel in and appreciate and understand the love that God has displayed for me in Christ. It won't be the training of our wills that gets us there. It will only be the recognition of God's love for us. If you've heard me say before, no one has ever loved someone because they've been commanded to. Do you know of anyone who's ever loved someone else because they've been demanded to do so? It doesn't work that way. It never happens that way. No one has ever loved because they've been commanded to. No one has ever wanted to see someone else thrive because they've been demanded to. It's only because they've understood something of the love of this other person. We only love when we experience love. It's like this in discipleship. It's like this in marriage. It's like this in parenting. It's like this with our neighbor. We only love when we experience love. We only want to see others succeed, to see others exalted when we really believe they love us. And we're only able to think less about ourselves and, and, and make much of Jesus when we realize the majesty and love of Jesus. A New Testament scholar and preacher, A.W. Pink, says, Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I'm truly occupied with that one who is meek and lowly in heart, if I'm constantly beholding his glory, then shall I be changed even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are changed when we look at Jesus, when we understand the love of the one who is willing to set aside the confines of heaven. And, and enter the world in the stench of an animal manger. We understand the love and the sacrifice where we want to see Him magnified. And how do we really know that God, that love, Jesus loved us? Isn't it by looking at the cross? 
by looking at the cross on which our Savior surrendered his life. This is the highest expression of love that anyone has ever demonstrated, the surrendering of our own lives. I want to say this. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are so loved by God today that he spared no expense to make you his own, to give you everything you need. In fact, if you are in Christ this morning, you are so loved by God that he went to the greatest extreme possible so that you could be loved and forgiven. That was the point of the cross, to satisfy the wrath of a holy God and to, to make pardon possible for sinners. So I can say to you without any hesitation this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, others may know your sins. Maybe everybody knows your sins. You may think about your failures constantly, but God doesn't know them anymore. He, Hebrews 8, the sins we do not forget, God does not remember. That's good news, isn't it? The sins that we do not forget, that we just keep coming back to, but I did it and I didn't want to. The sins that we do not forget, God does not remember. This is how much you are loved. If you are in Christ this morning, you are God's treasure, regardless of what you've done or not done. God sees you as perfectly righteous because Jesus was perfect for you. And it's that reality, the depths of God's love for you, that will create a, in you a heart that desires to see Christ magnified. Now let me, let me close with this. I started rereading this week for the umpteenth time uh, Dr. Paul Zoll's book, Grace and Practice, A Theology for Everyday Life. It's the most, most mind-blowing the most uh, radical, the most life-changing, the most infuriating book that I've read, I don't know, maybe ever. And I go back and I read it on a regular basis. And in this book, Dr. Zoll, who's a former pastor and seminary dean and Harvard grad and all that, he makes the point over and over again how law, command, demand, imperative, expectation, how it only hardens the heart when not accompanied by grace, when not accompanied by love. And he says, it's only love, one-way love or grace, it's only love that softens the heart. And he gives countless examples. Now, I want to read one example to you. And really, the point is, he goes on to say over and over and over again, it's only love that's going to soften a hard heart. And it's God's love for us that softened our heart. And it's only the love that we display toward others that's actually going to move them at the, at the heart level. And again, one example after another. Let me, read, let me just read one to you. And it's not on the screen because it's a little too long to put on power or put in the slides. But here's one example. He says, take, for example, your own adult child. You live in Trenton, New Jersey, and he moved to Portland. The fact is he could not get far enough away from you. He would not put it this way himself, but you represented the law for him. He understood you as a judge over his life. Lex semper accuset, that's the Latin, for the law always accuses. This broke your heart because you never meant to come across that way. You never meant to come across as accusatory, but you did. So he now lives in Oregon, land of physician-assisted suicide. But there's still hope. Reconciliation is possible. You fly out there, and you do not grovel, but you apologize instead. For the judgmental spirit you displayed time and time again, for the impossible expectations that you presented, for the endless criticism, 
You fly out there. You don't grovel, but you apologize. Even when he and the woman with whom he lives have a child, you roll up your sleeves and you help them. You don't throw stones. You don't open old wounds, but you really help them. You get involved and you provide help and you serve right where your son and your daughter-in-law really need you. This is grace. This is love. Three years after that weekend, you receive a call. Mom and Dad, Cheryl and I want to move back to New Jersey. We want our little boy to know his grandparents. And tacked onto that surprising, thrilling conversation is a little postscript. Oh, by the way, we didn't tell anybody, but we got married last month. We We found a nice pastor to do the service. This is what happens when love is demonstrated. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that correction is wrong. I'm not suggesting that we should never offer a word of rebuke or correction or whatever. Of course not. But we must understand the limitations of law. We must understand the the inability of commands and demands and expectations and criticisms to actually soften a heart. It's only knowing that we are loved that softens a hard heart. It's only experiencing love that moves someone to make much of the lover. It's only in knowing God's love that we desire to see Him increase and ourselves decrease and so experience true joy. How could John the Baptist demonstrate such humility? How could he get to the place where he wanted to see Christ magnified above all else? Only when the reality of God so loved the world And more specifically, God loved me and sent His Son to die for me. Only when those realities became something that pierced His heart and soul did He long to see Christ increase and Himself decrease. And what other response would be fitting for someone who's been loved in that way? Let's pray.